Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Up first on our front page, these are the stories that caught our attention this week. Chris, I figure we have to start off with talking about the highs and lows of Afghanistan coverage because there have been plenty of highs, but it, particularly in the past week, uh, a lot of lows. So uncharacteristically, I'm going to lead with the positive. Oh, okay. And I think Matt Lee, the AP's intrepid diplomatic correspondent, I wanted to play the clip of him putting it to State Department spokesman Ned Price. Months or beyond, uh, we will help that person. We will help that person depart Afghanistan. The family that I'm referring to, and possibly the family that Humaira is referring to, I mean, they were told, you guys do know. It, it defies logic to think that you guys don't have even a rough estimate of the number of LPRs who are uh, who are out there. We, we have... In- I mean, that's what these... I, I only wish we saw more of that in these briefings. These, like, good antagonistic, challenging questions that either force the government to provide answers or show that they really have no idea uh, what they're talking about. So hats off to Matt Lee. I like that. Let's quickly move past the good things. Well, I I just, well, I, so Matt Lee, I I go back and forth on Matt Lee. Oh, I love Matt Lee. Matt, we want you on the show. We don't have guests, but the Matt, best, when I'm on vacation, he can be my fill-in. So the very best thing that I can say about Matt Lee, and this very sincerely, it's very high praise, he is a jerk to everybody, right? Oh, he's really going to want to come on the show and fill in for you when he hears No, uh, he is, so press conferences- It's like Trump, equal opportunity offense. Yeah, and so Lee is, these press conferences, there is a performative thing for the reporters in the press conferences to be like, look at what I am doing Look at me beating up on you in my, the press no, conference. My heroism, my bravery and heroism. That was actually the worst part of covering the Trump administration was sitting in those briefings. And yeah, and the perform- and, and everybody in the Trump situation, everybody was getting what they wanted out of it. Like book deals and... Yeah, what was the name of the fame. guy from Playboy? Oh my gosh, that guy. The uh, worst. The, the guy who got ejected from the White House for getting into a shouting match with Dr. Sebastian Gorka. Yeah. And the uh, Brian Caram. Yeah. The performative nature. So, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's but good for Lee for holding them to account and calling them on. On to the lows of Afghanistan media coverage. Chris, I have a pretty specific one, which is Reuters. This is a high and a low. Reuters had a fantastic story yesterday with a real exclusive, which they obtained a transcript of a phone call that Biden had with the former Afghan president, Ashraf Ghani. And the transcript included Biden telling Ghani that there is a need, whether it is true or not, to project a different picture than, you know, what was unfolding in Afghanistan. And 
I think like it's interesting in and of itself that Biden was aware of the PR catastrophe of all this, even as he insists it all went according to plan. But two, I think it's a pretty amazing leak. I remember during the Trump administration when transcripts of his conversations with foreign officials were leaked, there was just a lot of talk about the dissatisfaction that must exist in the administration for these things to leak out. So one would have expected, I think, like pretty widespread coverage of this Reuters report and the phone call elsewhere. I put it in my Google machine this morning and I see that the story got picked up from Fox News and the New York Post and the Washington Free Beacon. But I also wanted to highlight, uh, we have to concede there were much more important stories happening yesterday than this. Uh, Here's what some of the cable news shows led with. Breaking news. Two Trump Organization executives are now set to testify before a Manhattan grand jury. Breaking news, one of the world's highest paid and most influential podcast hosts, Joe Rogan, just announced that he's tested positive for coronavirus. Turning to a worrying development, new CNN reporting shows that white supremacist groups are lauding and celebrating the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan. Some groups going as far as to suggest that the Taliban should be seen as a model for executing a civil war. All right, Chris, I think this is like a pretty good example of why... (laughs) People like me on the center right who like reporting are disaffected with the mainstream. Uh, Yeah, sure. You know, uh, I think it is absolutely true. I saw I'm I'm writing a book about media. And you told our our audience, our wide audience that before. Well, I don't know how wide they are. They probably very slender. The but I'm working on this book and I'm excited to be writing it. And it's great. uh, It's a great it's a great thing. And I think it's uh, what is the book about? It's about the media. It's about how we became a nation of moral imbeciles, where we stand around with our mouths agape, catching flies, waiting for people to tell us what we think or believe instead of doing what we're supposed to do, which is coming to our own conclusions based on our life experiences and our peers. But anyway, the I, so I've, I've, it necessitates my re-entry to Twitter at some point. And now I'm the worst kind of Twitter user, which is a lurking lurker. And I'm looking at this stuff. And there was a guy... I forget who, but was like, yeah, so Biden did this and he should be impeached for it, blah, blah. He's not my game, not my rules. These are the rules. I didn't think Trump should be impeached, but I also don't think Biden should be impeached for this. Nonetheless, it's interesting. It is. So it is 100% true that if this had leaked on Donald Trump, it would have been huge, right? Terrified Trump pleads for good coverage as uh, ally. No, twists the arm of uh, allied president to like create well, he, false he impression for voters. And I, I think the story here, the story in with the Ukraine was uh, different, and that was a really bad thing. You shouldn't try to whether or not it. I, I think. More Don't even go down that rabbit hole. I won't. I, I think the impeachment con- Congress should use the impeachment power, probably should have used the impeachment power more and more effectively. But that's a whole different discussion. But it would have been a much bigger story. You're 100 percent would have been a much bigger story if it had been Trump, because just as you say, it would have. Oh, my gosh. Can you believe the lies? Can you believe whatever? And in Biden's case, it's oh, now it's a less important story because what Biden's saying is is a duh, right? Hey, if people think your government's about to collapse, your government's going to collapse. That's what's going to happen to you. If people think that the, that Kabul is going to fall, that's what makes Kabul fall. This is It's a self-fulfilling thing because all that the terrible government in Afghanistan had was the belief that somehow it was going to make it. And of course, Biden knew that how humiliating the, the of all the things that Biden did wrong, that the Biden administration did wrong, in the retreat from Afghanistan, 
figuring that you could basically castrate the Afghan army and still somehow it would last for months and protect Kabul and give the United States time to get out was the worst miscalculation of all, right? It just was not an, an army that was trained to fight as a client of the United States with U.S. air power, U.S. spotters, advisors, and all that stuff. That was the, the worst mistake. And so he obviously had a personal interest in it, but at the same time, it's also true. It's what, what's the, the old New Yorker cartoon? The guys, crazy guys got a sign out on the street and it says the end is near, look busy. I think there's a little of that too. What do we have next? Oh, I wanted to talk about as a Lakota to this, the absurd CNN headline that was literally atop a story on the day that the 13 American service members were killed last Thursday. And the headline was Republicans pounce on Biden's Afghanistan failures. I mean, like you really can't make it up, but also like the Republicans would be political morons, which, you know, if they were not... Yeah. And even worse, not only is that a, a trope, the Republicans pounce trope and a little bit lazy. The other thing is they're not even doing it. They're not even pouncing. And you know why they're not pouncing? Because it's, it's a, Yeah, they're, it's a, a, what did they say in Arrested Development? Your father may have committed some light treason. This is some light pouncing because it's a hard issue for Republicans because there's a big, very vocal very active chunk of their party. Let's say it's a third of Republicans. The people who think Ann Coulter is cool, the people who are uh, watching Tucker Carlson, they're, they wanted the withdrawal and they think may, they may think Biden is a dope. But, yeah, I agree. And Trump wanted it too. So it's a complicated question for Republicans. Agreed. So they're steering around it. Agree. I want, I want people to hear just for context. We, in my career and your career, we have been praised for our bravery. People have said to, uh, to us and us about, oh, you were so brave to stand up to whatever. Of those in our profession, I'm not really sure it's personally been said about me, but I take your point. <laughs> but it's, and I've always marveled at when people have, have commended me or commended other reporter, American reporters about this stuff. And it's like, ain't that brave. So here's a, here, the, the story of the, the TV. So Afghanistan's television network is, and here he is. Here's the anchor and the video. There's no translation, but the video is of these armed Taliban goons standing behind a Western-dressed, yeah, our new allies, our friends, the Taliban. But the, but the video is of this terrified anchor sitting in a chair with these Kalashnikov-wielding lunatics behind him. You can hear the urgency in his voice. You can hear the alarm. And calling Arizona doesn't make you brave. Being able to not soil your BVDs while you are on television underpants. It's a brand. It's a brand, BVD. I, Never heard of it. I don't know if they, you haven't bought that many pair of men's underwear in your life, I assume. Not that you know of. Not that I know of. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the, that's bravery. And I commend him and I'm sorry. And for all of the journalists who believed what we told them in Afghanistan, I'm sorry. Up next, speaking of bravery, uh, we talked last week, Chris, about at Axel Springer's acquisition of Politico for a billion dollars. And I said then that 
given what I know about this company, Axel Springer, which is German, and the values that they do not shy away from, they're perfectly willing to tell people to go pound sand if they take issue with these values. So Axel Springer, in addition to flying an Israeli flag outside their offices during the latest Israel Hamas flare up, they ask employees to sign a statement of values that includes, we stand up for freedom, we support the Jewish people and the right of existence of the state of Israel, we advocate the transatlantic alliance between the United States of America, and so on. So Ben Smith of the New York Times, intrepid media reporter, notes this week that Politico employees, who are now Axel Springer employees, will not be forced to sign this affirmation of principles. So I am bummed about that, Chris. Um, Nonetheless, the company says they still stand by these values. And I, I look forward to seeing the protests in the Politico newsroom over this stuff. I knew it. And Axel Springer will find they will be sorry. <laughs> they will come to be sorry because they have never encountered the overweening hyper-privileged, obtuse American <laughs> journalists. I don't know what it's like for German reporters, but my experience with European and international reporters generally is that they embrace more of the craft side of this. It's it's more like trade and they tend to be rather workmanlike about things. And I, it's something actually I, I admire. They have never met these babies who went to Columbia Journalism School and have a lot of, they have feelings and they have thoughts about their feelings and they want to share them and they will come to regret. I do want to, by the way, point out, did you see the statistics from the FBI on hate crimes? I did. Please, and, this is like our bread and butter at the Beacon, Chris. Sorry. The anti-Semitism beat. I, I was really struck by that. And we had talked about it here before about the disparate coverage of hate crimes against Asians, against da-da-da-da-da, compared to hate crimes against Jews. And so it was the headline that I, you saw everywhere. It was a 6% increase in uh, hate crimes. 6%, not a lot of percent. I just say all hate. I, I, now, I should clarify at the beginning, I'm against hate criming, though there are no love crimes, I would also say. Some but hate crimes are love crimes. The, all crimes are crimes. And I, <laughs> I in, in one of the, the least popular opinions I've ever publicly had throughout my career, it is that hate crimes are a bad idea and that we should have equal protection under the I law for all you. people. But anyway, the buried story is, where was the largest, overwhelmingly the largest share of the increase were attacks on Jews, were anti-Semitic crimes. That's not what you saw, right? That was not, the coverage would not lead you to believe that was the case. And that was a good on you to have your eyes on it. You were quite right. It is, as the Beacon has said, the last acceptable hatred in, in polite elite society. Oh, no. Oh, no, madam. The... You can, you know who you can hate everywhere without fear of retribution? Poor whites. You can go dump on hillbillies all day long and people will just laugh. They'll say, oh, those rubes. It, that is a totally acceptable bias. You have your, I, I feel like you have a fed fetish, which is up next for you. The Just to, we had talked, it was last week about the coverage of the fed. What will the fed do about, about climate change? <laughs> and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the other members of the squad did not disappoint. They delivered on this and they asked the question, the, the coverage led them to the question, which was we are the, the statement we are. We urge President Biden 
to reimagine a Federal Reserve focused on eliminating climate risk and advancing racial and economic justice. And I just want to say, if you had a Federal Reserve that actually did that, what you'd have, you'd have a disaster. You'd have no currency. And we would all be eating dinty more beef stew out of the can and living in a cardboard box. So, so from a reporting angle, I'm curious, is the beef here, okay, the point of view is absurd. Does it merit coverage or not? Should we just be ignoring what the squad says about uh, the Fed because they don't know what they're talking about? Or does it actually, is it actually interesting to know like how crazy these people are? But it's interesting to know how crazy the people are, but the coverage must point out what the Federal Reserve is and does. Yeah. That's the problem with the cover. It's not that they shouldn't talk about what dumb people say. Cover dumb people. Yay. Go for it. You People have moronic ideas. It's fine to cover them, especially if they're members of Congress. And that goes for whether you're Lauren Boebert or whether you're Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. From, from Matt Gates to Maisie Hirono, let your freak flag fly. But you have to put the context in of what the Federal Reserve is and does and how frankly, preposterous that you would have your central bank be a climate that be, that be reimagined your to eliminate climate risk. That's and just advance racial justice. That's also just a, also a request. Yeah, it just you, you have to explain it's a instead of covering this here, like, the Fed is taxed by Congress, tasked by Congress to maximize the number of American jobs while keeping inflation low. Unclear where climate change fits into that. Yeah. Yeah. Vice News. Those of you alive 10 years ago may remember Vice News, which was at one point a commodity in the media business. People thought it was going to be like the next big media thing. And so the New York Post reports that Vice News, the future is uncertain because Vice was in talks for what the finance folk call a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company, which is basically a company that exists to find another company and take it public. So they had been talking about a SPAC that fell through and the post has this funny paragraph. Now the new plan is to raise money to turn vice profitable. <laughs> uh, in bold, it was really bold what if for those familiar with vice, you probably know it for their outlandish documentaries on some African warlord or they sent they went to North Korea with Kim Jong. Was it ill or un when they Kim one of the Kims? Yeah, one of the Kims, they, uh, they went with Kim Jong-il uh, and Dennis Rodman and were inside North Korea. But and, I think what people missed is those things are really expensive to make. Yeah. And so the challenge of turning a profit on the back of documentaries that send correspondence to far-flung places is not insignificant. And since then, they tried to build out a news outlet and do this and that. But like their identity really was for these, these cool Gonzo. documentaries yeah, yeah. and... A, clearly not a good business model. Did you ever see the series Documentary Now? No. So Documentary Now is, is a mockumentary series from Netflix. It's so good. And it's they're sending up all these things. And there's one where they do on, I believe Bill Hader's in it. I love Bill Hader. And they go into basically like El Chapo's gang, what is supposed to be like El Chapo's gang undercover. And they're just such doofuses. And they're they're in love with their own edginess. And what they're making fun of Vice for is being in love with being edgy, like edginess for its own sake. You know what American news consumers don't care about? How bad it is to live in places they already know are very bad. 
It's, it would be interesting to find out why someplace you think is good would be bad to live, but re reminding Americans like, hey, definitely don't live in warlord controlled Somalia is not one that Americans are like, okay, good point. We I'm were going to go there. I'm sort of vacation. interested in that, but, but well, we're I, weird. I also don't we're, think I'm the average American. And I also remember just for context on Vice News's inevitable failure was that when it started, it got buy-in from all the media bit. It's invested in it. And they got, it, it's like the Serrano. That's a really good analogy. Of news and all, the, all yeah. of the, all the rich uh, media people were like, oh, this is going to be big. I uh, uh, Shut up and take my money. And then 10 years later, you're like, oh, nobody wants to go see uh, what it looks like in El Chapo's bathroom. So not cool. enough people to foot the bills for it. No. And you are right. And I should say in praise. We have said here before, I, it is a point of mine that the major news organizations in the United States are not spending enough on gathering news and are spending too much of their time masticating I was uh, going to say, parts. this is why Fox News and CNN, you get on and it's seven talking heads because it's super cheap. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. All right. Up next, you got the Pew Poll. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Just as a, you're not, cra- like, dear America, you're not crazy. The here's the lead on the Pew survey this week. In just five years, the percentage of Republicans with at least some trust in national news organizations has been cut in half, dropping from 70 percent in 2016 to 35 percent this year. This decline is fueling the continued widening of the partisan gap in trust of media. Now, a couple things we know, we know that. The Republicans distrust the national news media because if you tell a Republican the phrase national news media, what comes to mind for them? ABC, CBS, NBC, the New York Times. No, Republicans don't like them. They've never liked them. Those are self-inflicted wounds by... They are, but it is also, by the way, augmented by the handicraft of Republican politicians who the one of the my favorite political aphorisms what you do with your political base you treat them like mushrooms you keep them in the dark and you cover them with horse manure and i don't really say manure when i usually do it but we can't afford an explicit stamp so it is augmented because republican politicians donald trump did not invent this oh you don't want to read these people who were doing negative coverage of me they're no, very it goes biased. back it goes back to rathergate when goes back to nixon long, long before that yeah for sure and and it goes back i think what a lot of people forget is that the shift in the 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 national news media was slightly i would say through the middle of the 1960s where somebody like henry luce a republican was the most pow- probably the most powerful national media figure the the McCormick's like the, the it was the to the right before there was a conservative movement. Yeah, that's right. And the the change in this, here's my here's what I suspect about the drop from 2016 to 2020 about the national media. Some of it is self-inflicted because the the coverage of Trump got so obsessive. And so there's that part. Then there's the part that I describe about Trump and Republicans feeding that narrative in order to make sure that their voters were not hearing unhappy things that might have been true. But here's the other one, the Fox News factor. I wonder how much of that uh, 50% decline are people who, I, I have a very strange experience in my life as I travel around the country where people say, oh, I miss John Fox. I can't watch it now. You never know what they're going to say next. The next thing may be, oh, they've just gone off the deep end and they're just, it's too much with the Trump stuff and I'm blah, 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 blah. Or 
They may say, I know you didn't do it, but they stole, they helped Biden steal the election. And you're like, oh, okay. So the Fox factor is probably- They do blame you for that. The people who are coming to talk to me usually do not- Yeah, yeah. you, like, because those people I would just run. I think this is like an accelerating, not a decelerating trend in media. So yes, there's a partisan divide. I also think we're seeing like the decline of ostensibly centrist news outlets, uh, loss and trust in them. And we're just going to have uh, people- going to news outlets, a rise in news outlets that are partisan and people seeking out news outlets that reflect their their interests and values. But news, what is the good news, Matt? What media Americans trust the most? Local news. Now it's down a little bit. Local Uh, news just thriving, right? But this, my argument, this is my belief that the way that we're going to uh, is get, bail some water out of the bottom of this boat is Americans are ready to listen to local news and makes local news more trusted is that it tends to be less ideological, political. It's about the weather. It's about what's going on. It's about road closures. It's news and information as opposed to national news, which because we live in a United States, not a we, we do live in a nation state, but we're a big, diverse country. And if you're trying to put together a story that works for everybody, you're going to scrape up national news stories that aren't really that important, right? You're going to obsess about these things because you need a story that can air from Telequa to Bangor, right? You need something that you can put on everywhere and that's going to lead, that's going to lead you the wrong direction. Local news, local news, local news. Chris, the final item in our top section is Jake Tapper tweet caught my attention. He said uh, maybe three days ago, we have higher standards for game show hosts than for members of Congress Definitely a sign of a healthy society with its priorities in order. You have to tell you have to tell the context. I actually don't remember the context. Jeopardy. Oh, sorry. Yes. Jeopardy got rid of its the guy who was supposed to be the host and then they moved him back to executive producer. He like Dick Cheney'd the process where he was leading the process to find the Trebek replacement. Yeah, and now he quit oh now he's quit all the way. Yeah, so he's totally you know. Speaking of which, I just thought this was rich. It's glass houses, don't throw stones. CNN has no standards. Chris Cuomo is still employed, was not disciplined for his behavior. Jeffrey Tubin, our wonderful producer, Alex, pointed out that in the fulsome coverage of the new Texas abortion law, they brought on none other than Jeffrey Tubin, not on Jake Tapper's show, but this, these are the same people who pay his bills on a different CNN show. And he had this to say. This is the first time an outright ban has been allowed by the Supreme Court to go into effect. And it is not going to be just Texas uh, if, the, if the Supreme Court d- continues not to step in, because every other law... Uh, in the many other red states that have been trying to ban abortion, they're going to pass copycat laws. And this is not um, this is not the end of the fight. Uh, This is just the beginning of the end of Roe v. Wade. All right. I just want to remind listeners that Jeffrey Tubin is the same man whipping out his private parts on a Zoom call is like far from the most objectionable thing that Jeffrey Tubin has done. He yep. he knocked up the daughter of his friend, his friend Jeff Greenfield. He knocked up the daughter, Casey. He reportedly offered her money to get an abortion, which she declined, and he didn't want to pay child support. Yeah. This is These are the standards that Jake Tapper is talking about. These kinds and- of... 
I don't want to make editorial standards. I don't want to make light of a serious subject, but Jeffrey Tubin should have disclosed that he is a person who has an interest in access to abortions before he should have disclosed yeah. uh, his conflict on this one. And I honestly don't know why. Why does CNN feel like it needs? Why does the world feel like it needs Jeffrey Tubin? I, a good question. I, I, I say this about when public officials are embroiled in scandal, like I on, and I want to say, do you think that there is no one else who can do this work? Do you think when I, I said, remember when Tom Price got busted, taking all these private yes. jets uh, to fly around and he was like, I'm hanging in there. And I'm like, why? You don't think there are a thousand other people in America who could just as ably or Ably do the job of the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Who could Move along. Hide I don't understand why. No, I'm with yeah. you. And it brought me back to when the when Tubin was in whatever, got a slap on the wrist for exposing himself to his New Yorker colleagues unintentionally. It's just this is everyone knew has known for decades that this guy is a complete a hole, and he's nonetheless been in polite society because he has the right opinions. All right, we're on to our obsessions of the week. <laughs> where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. Chris, as always, you're up first. I, so Harper's is, I don't want to, I'm not ready to say Harper's is great, but Harper is fascinating. And Harper's is publishing stuff that other places are not going to do. We've talked in the past about the struggle, but some at the Atlantic, but more at the New Yorker magazines that are just boringly predictable. You can, you could write that before we ever looked at an edition of the New Yorker, we could just write all the headlines. We could just say, there'll be an article about this. And then and we could have fun. Do you remember the old Twitter account Slate Pitches? No, but I like the idea. And it was like a bot that just generated Slate I like story that. pitches. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. we need Beacon Pitches. That, that's we definitely, we like, definitely need Beacon Pitches. right-wing content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it'll be, and then you just make up a word salad. But Harper's is going the other way and is really interesting. And I want, I was so taken with a piece by Joseph Bernstein called Bad News or Headline to Bad News. And it challenges, it challenges the, he, his term for it. I, it's like the, he, he, he has coined a term for the anti-disinformation movement and all of this stuff and the, the moral panic surrounding it. And he, he says something really- I can't even hear the word without sighing. So he, he, what does he, he says say? Something, he says something really transgressive, which is to say, probably not, right? That this whole culture uh, and this industry that has popped up around fact-checking and anti-misinformation is predicated on an idea that's probably not true. And the idea that it's predicated on is how convincible, malleable, and gullible Americans are. And the reason that this belief has become, has gone, like you, you mentioned polite society. Anywhere that you go with a group of college-educated people, you're probably safe, no matter the politics of the group, you're probably safe to talk about how people are being duped into believing things and that we have the low value information and people are being duped. He looks at the stats, he looks at the information and points out something. We have an interest 
in believing that this is because that premise says that we are powerful. I totally agree with this. It's Americans are perfectly capable of believing in conspiracy theories without being told to do so by by news outlets. And I also think this really took off because Trump was such a shameless liar. But of course, like when you polled people, they the polls showed that people said they think he's a liar, but they support him for these other reasons. Uh, it's not like this disinformation quote unquote, was rampant because uh, Trump was saying it was. So I'm going to just, I want to read you just a passage here to give you a taste. What is to be done with all the bad content? In March, the Aspen Institute announced that it would convene an exquisitely nonpartisan commission on information disorder, co-chaired by Katie Couric, which would (laughs) deliver recommendations for how the country can respond to this modern day crisis of faith and key institution, close quote. The 15 commissioners include, it goes on, on the list, all, all of the, you know, what a Prince, <laughs> just, uh, Prince Harry is on this commission and says faith and, and says the, among the commission's goals is to determine how government, private industry and civil society can work together to engage disaffected populations who have lost faith in evidence based reality. And he says faith being a well-known prerequisite for evidence based reality. <laughs> and, he, and he goes on to say this. And this is the takeaway. The Commission on Information Disorder is the latest and most creepily named addition to the new field of knowledge production that emerged during the Trump years at the juncture of media, academia, and policy research. Big disinfo, a kind of EPA for content. It seeks to expose the spread to various sorts of toxicity on social media platforms, the downstream effects of this spread in the platforms, clumsy, dishonest, and half-hearted. And his point here is, We all, if somebody says that you are bad and powerful, at least they're saying you're powerful. And when social media companies, when Democrats in Congress scream at them for spreading disinformation, when Republicans in Congress scream at them for silencing them, they're being told how that they control everything. And that goes right to their head. So not saying that these are not problems. I'm not saying that social media, uh, that we have not experienced a huge cultural lag as it relates to social media, comma, but let's not get carried away. Dopes will always be with us. Part of the human condition is is living with the fact that there are dopey dopes among us, and this will always be so. Touche. My obsession, Chris, is like a longstanding beef with these sniveling fact checkers at places oh. like Politico, PolitiFact and elsewhere that I think completely single out right of center news outlets. And this came to my attention because, of course, I follow mentions of the Washington Free Beacon and the Washington Free Beacon's Adam Credo, uh, my colleague, had a great scoop that The Biden administration scrapped plans for a State Department bureau that would have been devoted to crisis response. And this is in the run up to the Afghanistan crisis. So PolitiFact, Fox News and other outlets picked this up, but it it was Beacon reporting. So PolitiFact needs to weigh in on this, of course. So what was the what was the problem? I, I didn't follow the story. What was the perceived problem with them doing this? I'm actually not sure what the thinking was behind behind getting rid of this bureau, but the Trump administration had laid plans for it. Biden and Blinken came in. They scuttled these plans. 
And I'll get to what we later learned about this, but PolitiFact says little is known outside the government about the proposed bureau, but the narrative that emerged on Fox News and other media outlets left a misleading impression that Biden's State Department had axed a unique, fully operational program meant to oversee all evacuations just weeks before the Taliban takeover. And of course, the Beacon didn't say this. We really do try to get things right. We said that they had scrapped plans for it. And they say the narrative surrounding the Bureau appeared to originate with an August 18 report. Data. Fast forward and we get a Vanity Fair, a long Vanity Fair piece with the headline, how turf wars mucked up America's exit from Afghanistan. And the sent the story of the piece is about the scrapping of this bureau and how the special operations officer slated to lead it, uh, met privately with Blinken and told him he was resigning over disagreements with the decision to scrap this bureau. So the Vanity Fair piece, there had been plans in the offing to elevate its status at Foggy Bottom with an expansive new title, the Bureau of Contingency and Crisis Response. Then in July, everything changed. Blinken approved a recommendation to scrap this bureau. A unit distinguished by its ability to blow through bureaucratic wickets would instead be forced to play Mother May I answering to a series of administrators. Blah, blah. To, to outsiders, this must might seem like a low-stakes game of Jenga in reverse, but the move, which blindsided many, appeared to have profound consequences. Chris, I just want to say, I look forward to PolitiFact updating their article to take <laughs> with the Vanity Fair piece, et cetera, et cetera. Just kidding. But I thought this was totally ridiculous. And I am obsessed with these fact checkers taking essentially true stories and using the the conceit of fact checking to discredit solid reporting that emerges on the right of center. And uh, by the way, if other people misused your reporter's reporting, that's not your reporter's fault. Oh, 100%. We had a whole thing with PolitiFact over just that. I don't recall what the issue was, but uh, I ended up on the phone with the head of the organization saying, it is not our fault if certain people can't read. Right. Our report was totally accurate. Yeah. But there's a uh, lot, there's a lot of horse of a lot of horse pucky that surrounds the fact I, I Glenn Kessler is probably I don't like fact checking as a discipline, generally speaking, as a substitute for reporting. All reporting should be fact checking, right? It should all be informed by facty facts. And but I dislike PolitiFact stuff so often because of these kinds of subjective judgments. This way it's this and look and it's just let people make up their minds. This isn't a fact that you can check is when you remember when Donald Trump said that people are saying the Miami airport may be the largest in the world. There's yeah, a fact, I mean, there's a fact you can check. It, remember big, when Joe Biden said the troops wouldn't leave until all Americans were out of Afghanistan. Well, that's not it's even a fact check. That's just, he blew it. But I'm saying like a fact is a thing. If I said information he was spreading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This clown Daniel Dale at CNN during Trump, every statement was fact checked. And now if you go look at uh, his Twitter, he's like literally tweets out Biden's schedule. So let's just say like the left is not fact check with the rigorous energy that these people bring to the right. I stipulated. I stipulate. OK, finally, we are on to our favorite items of the week. <laughs> Now you're going to say something nice. I am going to say something nice. Yes. (laughs) I already did say something nice about Matt Lee, which you Mm -hmm. then dumped on. (laughs) uh, What is your favorite item? I want to say something nice 
about the Screenland the Screenland piece in the New York Times Magazine by Dan Brooks. And it's about something we don't think enough about, which is how our lives have been changed by having video, everyone having a video camera in their pocket. And he uses an, an, a TikTok prank as his way in on this. And he describes the video of a couple outside of a Panda Express that leads to a violent confrontation and all the TikTok pranks. And he poses a couple of really interesting questions. And I think, uh, by the way, parents should definitely check this piece out because we're dinosaurs, but the world that we're leaving to our kids, part of it is the terrifying truth that you do not own yourself, right? That wherever you go in the world, someone may be recording you on a phone. Someone may put you in a compromising position on video at any time. And the part of the reason that we see among Xennials and young people, a fear is one of the components of fear of that fear rightfully is that you could at any moment be subject to a life disrupting, a terrible incident in which somebody puts a video camera in your face, anyone anywhere puts a video camera in your face, gets a clip of you doing or say, saying the wrong thing and blow you up. And that is, we have not thought enough about that question. And I highly, I, I commend him for writing the piece and I, I commend it to everybody to read. It's a good one. Chris, my favorite item of the week is one of your favorite, by one of your favorite reporters, Michael Powell at the New York Times, who- The great um, Michael Powell. I'm surprised that there aren't more reporters on this kind of woke infiltration of the elite, like beat, because there are so many interesting stories. So he had a great piece last week on the battle in New York's elite private schools, places that cost 50 or $60,000 a year over critical race theory, and he writes that he characterizes his piece as another dispatch from America's cultural conflicts over schools, this time from a rarefied bu bubble. Elite private schools have embraced a mission to end racism by challenging white privilege. And he talks about the various instances where this has come up with teachers protesting and students protesting and parents protesting and administrators li largely standing by what they're doing. But fantastic piece. And we will link both those things in the show notes. And I guess both of our favorite items were from the New York Times this week. So a lot of good journalism still happening, even as even as we dump. And, and Michael Powell's emails. and Michael Powell's great piece twigs off of a piece by the also fantastic Caitlin Flanagan from The Atlantic, who was one of who who Pierce stuck a knitting needle into the bloated side of the hyper elite New York world about how crazy the experiences are for people who are trying to do their job. And, and the L.A. world um, and, in the Harvard yeah. Westlake School. And he, Michael Powell, introduces us to a man named Paul Rossi, a teacher, and just Michael Powell's willingness to, you, you say you're surprised that more people don't. I don't ever want to think about what Michael Powell has to put up with in yeah, his life to be a reporter at the New York Times and be like, hey, you know what I'm going to write about? I'm going to write about how wokeism is making people stupid and is being used to abuse. And that is probably not that Barry Weiss would tell you uh, that is probably not the kind of thing that wins you a crowded table in the lunchroom. Chris, totally agree with you. I don't have anything to add. And that is all the time that we have left today. 
That's the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stain Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches.